Hello, welcome everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Cashew Podcast channel. My name is Stacy Geringer and I am the Outreach Director at the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare. We are excited to share our latest podcast series with you. The series is titled Early Development and Child Welfare and features interviews with a variety of professionals in the fields of early childhood and child welfare. Listeners will enjoy content related to attachment, culture, screening, brain development, infant mental health, and more. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel for future episodes. Thank you for listening and take care. I'm Chris Johnson. I've worked in Minnesota for many years in child protection, both as a worker and as a child protection supervisor. I'm here with Dr. Dan Barry, Associate Professor of Child Psychology in the Institute of Child Development at the University of Minnesota. Today, we will be talking about early brain development and how it is impacted by interactions of genetics in the environment. So our first question, what are the neurobiological hallmarks of an infant brain and how does the infant brain look different from an adult brain? Uh, Thanks, Chris, for having me here. I appreciate it. so the big question, uh, and I guess the, the, the kind of easiest answer is, well, those brains are much smaller. Baby brains are smaller, <laughs> but they're, they're also different in, in kind of qualitatively and uh, kind of amazing ways. And one of the biggest hallmarks, I think, um, of early uh, brain development is just how rapidly it's going. Um, it's kind of unprecedented. So if you think about um, what's going on prenatally, uh, we go, and uh, in, in of course of, of a um, pregnancy, you're going from a neural tube that's about three millimeters long, which be, actually become the brain, um, to this, so this little thing that grows into essentially what is a very small, a kind of adult level shape looking brain. By the second trimester, you've got all those gyri and all those, those the, the kind of worm-like structures, like all the, 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 my kids say it looks like a bowl of shrimp. Um, uh, so you, you've, you've, by the second trimester, you've, you've got all that. Um, and you continue to develop that um, in, until you're born. And you had at birth around 100 billion neurons. Right, so that's kind of adult level neurons in terms of the number you have. And so neurogenesis, the the creation of neurons um, is kind of largely there at birth. Um, You can continue building, uh, growing, building them um, throughout life, Um, but largely what's happening um, afterwards, so you've got this massive growth that's going on, so um, prenatally. So to get to that level, you've got to go from, essentially nothing to creating about 250,000 neurons uh, uh, a minute uh, for the entire entirety of pregnancy, right? So wow. um, it, it's, it's this massive growth. And it's no wonder that, you know, um, pregnant moms are so tired. Um, this, all the energy that goes into building these brains um, is amazing. Um, after birth, so it's more about building the connections between those neurons. Um, so it's not just forming new neurons, it's the way you're creating networks between them, um, how they talk with each other. And that's going uh, under rapid growth really across um, infancy and toddlerhood and early childhood, um, just this really rapid uh, growth of the connections of these areas. So as kids are getting input from the environment, it's, it's what's building these connections, creating this architecture that's the foundation of how they interact with the world. 
Um, so, so much so that they're actually overproducing these, these, neuron, these um, uh, synapses, these connections between neurons. Um, and with time and experience, the ones that get used the most, um, they become increasingly more efficient. So um, they develop what's called myelin, but it's a, a fatty sheath that actually, it, it functions like insulation on electrical wire. Um, the more insulated a, a, a wire is, the less energy is lost and the more efficient energy is transmitted. Um, the more that happens, more uh, easily information is passed from neuron to neuron. And the more that happens, the stronger these networks become. The ones you don't use, so you've created an overabundance of them, um, they become pruned away. So if you don't need it, you, you get rid of them. So um, the growth of the brain early on is this ra rapid cycle of kind of uh, pronounced growth, um, but then slowly a kind of pruning away of the, uh, the networks that you don't need as much. And that leads to much more efficient connections. Um, that are tailored to your environment. So as you're talking about it, when an infant is born, they kind of have the hardware, you know, the, the, the structures are there. And then it's the experience that connects up or creates the connections within the brain. And then as time goes on, those um, connections either become strengthened or just sort of fall away, depending on that ongoing experience. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's it. It's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. All right. So then then one of the take home messages of that is those those early, early experiences that are laying down the connections uh, become so vitally important. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so these are again, it's like a foundation. It's everything that comes afterwards is built on it. Um, and so uh, you're kind of think about it is setting uh, it's setting you down a pathway. And now um, there's always room for change, right? So these are these are probabilistic um, connections. These are probabilistic, um, you know, phenomena in terms of development. It's not that uh, you you're if you have one thing happen, you're something's definitely going to happen with your brain. Um, you know, sure. there's um, but it is this um, gradual process. So as you're talking about this, I'm trying to think of like an example of you know a, a six seven month old infant. Um, sits on a parent's lap and you read a book and mm -hmm. and the more you know so as you're doing that just the experience of sitting on a parent's lap and reading a book is that creating brain connections in that experience well it, so in terms of the networks you so yes or no so that is uh, that's a uh, kind of a kind of uh, a first step in the process so typically uh, when you're trying to connect these networks together so it's uh, if you think about kind of what learning is in the brain it's sometimes referred to as long-term potentiation but it's the the extent to which these um, connections remain robust so they're they're there and they're pretty ingrained that usually takes multiple goes so if you just do a once-off you know, um, it's, it's, there are going to be benefits from it, right? Kids feel mm -hmm. good when they're next to caregivers that, that they like being around, right? There's going sure. to be benefits in terms of just their experience of the world, which I think is also a very good thing. Um, sure. But in terms of learning from that book, uh, what they're learning is uh, at that age, at, at six to nine months, um, they're learning, oh, this is enjoyable. When I, when I look at mom in the course of this book or look at grandmom or dad or whomever, mm -hmm. um, they look back at me. Oh, and they smiled. Well, that makes my body feel nice. I like that. I'm going to smile back at them. Um, sure. We're going to have this back and forth. 
um, of me uh, engaging with my caregiver and they're going to respond back. And that is building neural circuitry. Uh, that is not necessarily learning about the book per se, but it's learning about myself. It's learning about my relationship in a kind of implicit automatic way with this adult. Um, I'm building my an, uh, kind of in, uh, internal understanding of what I should expect from this adult. Sure. Uh, and and that is for that that's itself serves as a structure um, for supporting engagement with the environment. If I feel safe and I'm enjoying this interaction, I'm gonna my attention's gonna dig into it. I'm gonna get more out of it, and I'm gonna under gonna get to understand this relationship a little bit better. Sure. So then I think about maybe a little bit older than six to nine months. I'm holding the book and I'm saying, "Where's the bear?" and baby points to bear and I say, there's the bear. And then they giggle or something like that. Is that yeah. more like the interactive stuff you're talking about? Yeah. And, but I think, I think functionally they work, they work very similarly, whether you're dealing with a kid who's just learning to read, say a kindergartner, uh, yeah. or whether you're dealing with a baby, because ultimately what you're trying to do is facilitate engagement. And with a baby, it's more about facilitating engagement with the relationship, with the parent. What is like, it's building that back and forth and the baby learns what to expect. But to pay attention and learn from it, it needs that kind of um, affective kind of feeling component to it. And that's the same way if you're teaching a child to read and reading a book and you're saying, it's not just about um, there's a bear, it's there's a bear. Oh my goodness, this feels really good too. So now I'm actually looking where mom is pointing or caregiver is pointing. I'm, in, I'm probably making more note of it because my body has been primed to pay attention. My, brain, my sure. brain has been primed to say, oh, this is cool. I really enjoy this. I'm going to put my attention here. And if you do that enough uh, and get those inputs, you're going to gradually learn what a bear is or you know, all, the, all the component parts that come in the reading, the language development, the, you know, um, the critical thinking, all those things come uh, through, through engagement. But it, you learn more when you're in an affective place where you feel good, where you're feeling sure. kind of comfortable. Sure, sure. So, so the, the kiddo, the infant, the baby's feeling comfortable and I'm as a caregiver noticing that. So let's say I'm noticing baby's not comfortable. Um, you know, that baby is going uh, 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 or starting mm -hmm. to whine or starting to cry or mm -hmm. whatever, then, then what you're talking about as, as the parent, then I'm kind of tuning in and trying to figure that out so that the baby can settle and get more comfortable. Is that, does that form brain connections too? Absolutely. In, 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 in the brain of the parent, right? So what we're talking about is two brains and two bodies that are learning from each other. Um, and the same works. Parents get a boost uh, physiologically when they see their child smile and they see their child's face compared to another face, another child's face. It's nice experimental work that's, that shows that's the case. The, the brain responds to pictures of your own child more than it does uh, to pictures of ch children you don't know. And so you can think about these as, as really two bodies and brains talking with each other and they're learning from each other. Um, and so but I, it is this back and forth. It is this child's leading the game. If you, if you misread something, that's fine. Um, we, you're not supposed to be getting it all the time. It's kind of, are you learning though? Are you learning how to read your child's needs and in turn how to respond them? Um, it's not just about being in lockstep all the time, um, but it's about kind of accumulation of experiences over time uh, that allows us to attune uh, to our kids um, more effectively. And it lets the child understand kind of 
what they should be able to predict in their environment. And this predictability is a big part of feeling safe, understanding what's going on in the world. Um, it's that historically, you know, when I've gone, made that noise, uh, 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 or I seem unhappy, well, mom or caregiver has noticed that um, I'm a little not so happy and she's backed off. She, maybe I was overstimulated. Um, maybe uh, I'm feeling hungry. Um, is she able to, you know, or he able to understand that and respond accordingly? Uh, and sure. that's what we, that's the idea. Um, the folks at the Center on Developing Child at Harvard have, you know, coined the term serve and return. So it's a nice metaphor okay. for child serves, parent under, interprets, notices, and then interprets the, the child behavior and tries to respond accordingly. Maybe you don't get it right all the time. That's fine. You just try again um, and to, until it works. And it with time, you get to, and parents know, you get to know your kids, you get to know the little signals, um, and um, you get better with it, uh, with practice as well, as a parent. Sure. So serve and return, that process, it isn't just kind of getting us through the day of, my baby's fussy, I want him to settle so he can go to sleep. You know, that's the here and now, but the other thing that's happening in that is that all that brain work is happening so that they're the next time they're learning what to expect about if I do this, then mom and dad do this and then I settle or if I do this, then grandma hears me or auntie hears me or whatever and I settle. Um, that, that's kind of what you're saying too, that it isn't just about getting through the day. It's also about the very long term um, brain building that's happening in those immediate interactions. Yeah. So I say, I say yes. And so I say, I say this as a parent um, with two young kids. Um, sometimes you just need, sometimes you do need just to, to get through the day, right? Like yeah. so, sometimes like we're, we're real people, right? And, mm-hmm. and part of, um, you know, in get, being a parent is learning how to regulate, regulate yourself in the context of being a parent, right? So uh, I think we need to be careful not to get parents scared that they can't make, you know, small mistakes, um, and these aren't even, this is just, this is just a real world, right? Um, right. so, uh, I want, I don't want to go too, too nuts uh, on it, but I do, I do think it's, it's kind of a yes and scenario. So sometimes if I just need to, you know, get, get my life in order and baby, baby's just going to go have a nap, hang out for a little bit. I, and sometimes you need to do that to regulate yourself so you can be in the picture in a better way the next time. Setting yourself up for success. Uh, in terms of these back and forth, like more nuanced back and forth, I think it's not one or the other. There could be some very practical things about, you know, engaging with your kids. But I think you're absolutely right that it is not just here and now. Um, it's here and now and the here and now by the nature of this exchange between us, that is what's building these foundations. It is creating quite literally a physical structure in terms of connections in the brain um, that are gonna, they're undergirding all the other stuff, all the higher level learning. If that structure's not there, it makes all that other stuff more difficult. So sure. um, uh, so that's, that, that's kind of the way I'm thinking about, about that, yeah. Well, and that's, that's a super helpful clarification because as parents, we also put so much pressure on ourselves and it's just, you know, that feeling of, oh no, we had a bad day or oh no, we had a thing happen. Um, doesn't mean that kids can't bounce back from that and recover. And like that long-term consistency is probably what we're going for, you know, within the hiccups of bad days, bad experiences, rough times, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. What you're, you're building a repertoire, right? And that, um, and the nice thing about that, if you have that, if you're working on that 
uh, early, um, the stronger foundation they have, that the more okay it is to get off a little off kilter every once sure. in a while, right? Because sure. the, the expectation, and so over the first year, really, um, when kids are um, kind of developing these attachment relationships, what those attachment relationships are is essentially their ability to understand um, that you're going to be there uh, and that when they get a little dysregulated, they can look to you for help. Um, this is all kind of automatic and implicit. This is not, you know, kids reasoning about this stuff. This is all the, the bodily understanding that you're there for me. That's not, a, that's not created through a one-off thing, right? That's created mm-hmm. through the kids are encoding these uh, experiences over the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, over the long term, my caregiver is able to read my needs and respond accordingly. And that mm-hmm. s- serves as, uh, we kind of think about it as like an eternal affordance. If I believe that I'm taken care of, I'm more likely to explore things on my own. I'm, I'm trying, mm-hmm. I'm going to be as a toddler a little bit more, um, you know, uh, bold as I explore the world because mm-hmm. I can look over my shoulder and know that um, my caregiver is there. Just mm-hmm. the fact that they're in mind and that I know they're there is a support. It's a scaffold to try new things. Um, and that is the kind of cornerstone of learning. So we used to hear a lot about nature versus nurture, the argument mm-hmm. with respect to a child's development. But in light of modern research, we've come to understand it's not one or the other, but an interplay of the two. So um, I think we've been talking about the research field's current perspective, but do you have anything to add to that or or, um, expand on with that? Sure. I mean, just to reiterate, I think uh, I'm glad that the old debates of is it nature or nurture are are, are, uh, made their way to the dustbins of time, as one of my old advisors used to say. uh, so that's done, and that's partly because we know now that at a, at a molecular level, you can't separate experience from from genetics. So, um, so genetics typically people think about DNA, right? So these are um, the the what um, allows the us to pass along traits, um, right? It's, it has it's this four letter language where it's read and transcribed into RNA, which is made into amino acids, which turn into proteins. That's what a gene is. It's something that turns a protein on or off. But the way genes work is they're not like a light switch that goes on or off. It's more like a dimmer switch. So you can turn it a l- more or less on and what we've, we've learned, and the royal we here, I'm not an epigeneticist, um, mm-hmm. but the folks who do epigenetics have, have found through a lot of really elegant work in rodent models and increasingly with human models, um, shown that experience actually um, kind of intercedes in the, the level going from DNA to essentially um, to turning the gene on or off. Um, so gene expression. So... Um, Quite literally, an experience will go in, put a biological molecular marker that sits on the DNA, particularly in areas of DNA that play a role in, in this regulating the gene, how much it turns on and off. Uh, and through experience, uh, that gets embedded in the DNA, and therefore the gene that it would have coded for prior, or the, how, how the gene functioned prior in the cell, is now changed because this little marker is sitting there and it changed the way the gene is read. So you just think about this as kind of like a, a biological way of embedding experience that literally function how the gene turns on or off. Sure. So a lot of super technical information in there, but it sounds like, again, <laughs> the take home message in that is 
that our, our, our brains are changed at a, a genetic level based on experience and that that experience once that brain changes so that mm-hmm. dimmer switch goes up a little higher does mm-hmm. it stay there and so it's just there now based on that experience or does it dim you know brighten or dim based on continued experience ah great question um so the answer is kind of yes to both once there is this kind of epigenetic embedding um it can actually be passed on to gener- future generations. So if, if a mom or d- dad has, has this change, it's possible they can actually pass along that change to their own children. So once it's there, it's kind of there. There can be changes at the, at the level of the DNA, but ultimately you can still change the be- behavior though. So let me, let me see if I can come up with an example. So a lot of this work um, was actually started in rodent models. And what they would do is you could have, you could have mice that are genetically identical. Right. So mice, you can inbreed them over and over and over again. So you have these mice that you work with and they have the same DNA for pretty much. They're almost like MZ, monozygotic twins. And it also happens that there's kind of natural variation in some mouse moms um, are really engaged. They're doing lots of licking and grooming. They're just really into kind of licking and grooming uh, their pups. They're doing arch, they lean their backs in an arch so the pups can feed really well. Um, and despite the fact that, that there's gen- they're genetically identical, some mouse moms or rat moms do this more than other rat moms. So what you can do is you can actually take one of the um, rats from the high licking grooming mom, have it be raised by the low licking grooming mom, and do the vice versa. Um, mm-hmm. And so, if they had, they had, presumably, if they had passed along this epigenetic marker, so let's say there was an epigenetic marker for licking and grooming. If you were a low licking grooming baby and you're raised by uh, a high licking grooming mom, you will look more like the high licking grooming mom, like later in life. So sure. even, if, even if you have the epigenetic marker, you've inherited it from your parent, let's say, um, sure. you can still change the behavior. Um, it just may not be through the same uh, epigenetic mechanism sure so like a that's a really good example of it really is both it is it is the genetics and it is the experience and the interplay of those things to see how that plays out for the infant and and as as child welfare workers i think we it's helpful to remember that and as parents it's helpful to remember that that the experience isn't the be-all end-all the the genetic isn't the be all end all it's both and we and we want to see that interplay over time absolutely the brain is massively plastic um it can reorganize so even if you had certain experiences that are lead to to be the epigenetic or or not they could just be experiential in terms of the way a brain is forming that's setting up a pathway of development but things can change the brain can reorganize and so you know an extreme version of this for instance language you know the language development um is is language is is, is uh, lateralized so it's um, you see a lot of the um, kind of language regions of the brain the left hemisphere there are kids who um have um epilepsy um who long after developing language into their mid mid childhood even adolescence um one, if you have extreme epilepsy that doesn't respond to certain treatments, you, the extreme um, um, intervention is actually to cut out one of the hemispheres. 
Um, and you'd think that, you know, because language is so lateralized to the left, that if you, cu- if you cut out one of the, hemis- the left hemisphere, you'd lose language, right? Um, but the brain actually reorganizes. Um, so even this thing that's, that's thought to be, you know, kind of have a, a, a sensitive period, um, even, even into adolescence um, and middle childhood, when you have this very extreme intervention, the brain can reorganize around it. Um, and sure. these kids can still have language despite this, this change. So the, the brain is a, a remarkably plastic and, and finds ways to reorganize. Um, it doesn't mean we can always erase everything completely from our past, um, you know, but um, we can learn from our past and we can recreate neural pathways in novel ones. Sure. Well, and you just alluded to this a little bit, but maybe you could talk a little bit more about those sensitive periods of brain development. Um, can you explain what's, what's meant by those sensitive periods and what's happening neurobiologically? Sure. Uh, well, yeah. Um, so when folks talk about sensitive periods, um, I guess first we'll say what I think most people mean is that there are times in development that are particularly sensitive to certain types of inputs. So, um, you know, an example might be the brain is expecting um, to have back and forth exchanges, social exchanges with another care, with a caregiver, an adult. Um, like the through evolutionary processes, that's baked in. That's what we call that an experience expectant um, process. And if you don't get that kind of basic species level expectation, so the, for instance, extreme neglect. If you're in a neglectful environment that's not giving you those things, a sensitive period would suggest that um, maybe if you don't, if you miss those experiences at a particular time in development, say in the first few years of life, it's going to make it harder if you then get got those experiences later say at age three uh, it makes it harder to kind of fix or ameliorate kind of the 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 things that were caused by the early deficit does that make sense sure so um and that's distinct from a critical period so people also often kind of use the terms interchangeably i don't think i i I don't like that because i think critical window suggests that there's a window and then it closes and then you're done um, sure. and, I, and there's very little evidence for critical periods for complex things like social um, outcomes and complex uh, cognitive outcomes. Um, so sensitive period just means that there might be a time that's particularly sensitive to these experiences, but not that the door is shutting completely. Um, sure. And so there does seem to be some. So a lot of this evidence um, comes from... Um, studies of um, kids who are in institutionalized care, um, often in places um, uh, in Eastern Europe, Russia, Romania, um, that um, for for reasons of history um, had big influxes of kids that were going in these uh, orphanages, these institutions, but they didn't have the infrastructure to give these kids proper care. Um, so these are kids who are getting, you know, the basic needs. They're being fed and they're being changed, um, but they're not getting social stimulation. They don't have consistent caregivers. They're being housed in, you know, uh, rooms with many, many kids. Um, so this is just this is straight up neglect that they're getting. And there's some indication um, that the earlier, if you for kids who are who are taken out of those circumstances. The earlier you're taken out, the better uh, in terms of your long-term outcomes. Um, sure. And this is true for, you know, really a, a big range of outcomes. Everything from, 
um, you know, physical growth to brain growth to, um, you know, attention, uh, executive function. So how you hold information and do kind of complex thought, um, neural development, the kind of the way these connections are being built in the brain. Um, so the earlier, the better is typically the take home there. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think from the data you can say there are any hard and fast thresholds um, and it kind of varies across the different outcomes and, and such. But um, I think one take home message from that literature is that they're, you know, getting less of bad stuff early is, is a good thing. Um, uh, um, But I'd also say that these are really extreme environments. So this is not talking about the types of normative experiences that kids have. These are, these are the types of environments that aren't normal for our species. Um, And so this is kind of, you're not getting a basic need. So that's typically when folks talk about sensitive periods, it's a really hard thing to study empirically um, uh, because we can't, and nor we want to uh, randomly assign kids, you know, to certain doses and certain timings of bad stuff. Yeah. But it sounds like the, the thing that's important for us to remember. And I think when you, when you think about it in terms of child welfare, the, the situations that might grab our attention would be kids acting out or kids exhibiting behavior issues, which oftentimes you don't see till school. Mm -hmm. And the thing for us to remember is actually those sensitive periods are happening before school um, when kids might not be signaling us, so to speak, that there's concerning stuff happening. But we as child welfare workers need to think that way and be aware that those that early life experience um, is making a difference, even if the kids aren't showing us the poor brain development that might be happening. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's a really great point and great observation, Chris. Um, and we actually that that's that's evident in the data to some degree. Um, so if it's the case that you know you do see kids that are maybe acting out, but maybe that you don't that doesn't become more clear until school. So you have to kind of look for. those signs are are evident before school, but they Mm -hmm. also, those transitions into new environments bring with them all kinds of new sets of experiences that could be challenging for the system, but they're challenging because of, you know, where you started, right? You didn't, uh, so if you didn't have those, those, if you're in those experiences that lead to difficult attention, not great social skills. So one thing, for instance, you see with these kids who are in this uh, post-institutionalized care and then you know, uh, moved out of that, those situations, they, one of the, the trends of behaviorally is these kids tend to be kind of overly solicitous. Um, they tend to be, um, they'll hang out with anyone. They're excited about interacting with any adult. It's not about special relationships. It's like, you're equally happy to see this stranger as you are to see, you know, this person you know better. And you can imagine how what that's like, um, a kid who's entering a peer group um, in this overly solicitous way that could lead to peer problems. And those are stressors that could exacerbate um, problems. Um, sure. I, I yeah. think in, in child welfare, we see, we see that all along in continuum. Sometimes we see kids that like you walk in the door and they're ju- they jump on you and it's like, oh, honey, you don't know me. And so then we try to say, you know, you sit over there by your mom because you don't know me, do you? And then we also see those kids that are um, a little more, I don't think this is the right word, but kind of numbed out, you mm-hmm. know, that, that that's also, a, you know, that that might be, you know, parenting, you might think they're, they're doing okay, but actually they're, you know, they're not seeking cues and they're not seeking out adults and, 
And that's a different type of, of signaling to us that something isn't going on yeah, well, that's right. or that there's a problem. Absolutely, right? So um, there are kind of more externalizing types of behavioral profiles. Yeah. Is the kind of, and then there's the internalizing, the turning in, and those anxiety, yeah. kind of early depression, um, you know, even, even kind of PTSD-type symptoms um, you can yeah. see with kids. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, some, some things are easier to see than others, and you, you kind of got to keep a skilled eye uh, looking for both. Uh, right. Abso- absolutely. And I think that's a that's a, a a message that I'm hearing from you is keeping that skilled eye on the, on the child. You know that as child welfare workers, we go in and we're so focused on the parent and we're talking to the parent and getting information from the parent and and listening to that. But then also then to turn our lens to what are we seeing in this kid and asking the parent, you know, what what does the interaction look like and how is it to parent this um, kiddo and. Is this a baby who cries a lot? Is this a, is this baby pretty quiet? You know, th- that's what I'm hearing from you too. Is that um, not just the um, the interaction that we have from the parent, but but you're really speaking from the perspective of the kid and what is the kid or that infant sh- telling us or showing us in their um, behavior? Yeah. So I think you definitely that's something one needs to attend to. Also. Um, the in- interaction. So when, when a child's behaving some, somebody, how, how does the caregiver respond? Um, you know, so in that, what is the dynamic between the two? I mean, that's the, if I can relay anything, is the importance of systems. So, mm-hmm. you know, ch- children and parents don't exist as these standalone things. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, there's a dyadic component that's bigger than the sum of its parts. Um, sure. And so understanding that relational back and forth and that it, I think that's kind of where the where we need to pay critical attention to. Um, and also, though, I, I go beyond that. It's not just the child and it's not just the parent. It's not just the dyad. These kids have rich networks um, of mm-hmm. systems. So that could be other family members. That could be extended mm-hmm. family members. That could be resources in the community. That could be mm-hmm. um, and. You know, all these things play in. They affect each other. That's the thing with systems. When you affect one part of the system, it trickles down and affects the others. So I say, absolutely, think about what's going on in the in child's life, but also the child in the in the in the caregiver context, how they work together, and then broadly, how is that that kind of dyadic context um, between caregiver and child nested within these other structures of the family, um, mm-hmm. and. My guess is that 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 families vary in kind of what those networks look like, right? Sure. And so, what is going to be the best way to kind of intervene, and it's going to differ between kid kid kids sure. in terms of you know how or families in terms of what networks they have, what assets they have. Um, sure. So that yeah. Well, I was just going to say that's that's um, that's helpful clarification, and that's also ideally how we're doing our assessments and how we're how we're interacting with the family as we're looking at that whole picture, not just what happens in this household or in that snapshot of the hour and a half visit that we have with the family, but what are the other relatives seeing, the other parents, the extended family, what are the teachers and the neighbors, what, what are they all seeing and experiencing with this family, and how can they add and support to the family? It really fits with what we do in child welfare because we want to be seeing that family as part of their whole environment, and it sounds like you're saying that we want to um, strengthen up and support and consider all those different aspects of the environment to add and support to the child's development. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, just to give, you know, maybe try to give a concrete example. If you are a parent, um, and particularly if you, you know, if you're uh, in a family that's struggling with economic adversity, um, these these families are often working multiple jobs. Um, they are working service sector jobs, so they're not for, they're not kind of nine to five. Um, and a big stressor in these families' lives is what do you do with your kids? Like you want to find quality care. So maybe maybe you have um, extended family that can help, but maybe you don't. Um, and so some families are going to have that. Other families are not. If you're in a family that doesn't, well, how do you think about the system? Well, if mom is or caregiver is stressed about having to negotiate where are the kids going to go, that's just one more thing. That's one more thing on this pile of things um, right. that these families are trying to negotiate. And that that can and does trickle down to, to these more proximal engagements. So. Perhaps it seems like if, you, if I were walking into that situation, you know, one solution would be like, all right, well, let's think about um, parent-child engagement. Well, maybe they're actually fine if you free up mom's resources. If you, if you just kind of allow her to be less stressed, she's going to fall right into a nice rhythm. Um, so a way to alleviate for some families might be like, maybe we should talk to our child care resource uh, folks. And what is available? How can I fill in that gap? And maybe if I alleviate that tension, that's going to help the system kind of fall into its more, you know, optimal back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. And that's going to differ between families. But it's, it's again, it's about all these different systems and all the kind of culmination of levers that you could do interventionally that are going to help facilitate this kind of going back to this more optimal serve and return. Um, it's thinking, that's the mechanism of growth that's that we hope for so what can we do for a family system to maximize that um for kids experiences sure and that um that i think about experience that i had with families i would look at some families and say if this family had everything else around them okay they've got it they 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 are attentive attuned um really um and do really sensitive parenting Mm-hmm. And then there are other families that I remember looking at and thinking, I don't think they know what to do. If it was just this caregiver and baby in a room, I don't think they would know what to do. Mm-hmm. And so that's an t- entirely different intervention, right? That's more like those um, home visiting programs and that kind of thing to say, let's, let's talk about how you coo at your baby and talk to your baby. Some parents do need that very hands-on, you know, for example, if they didn't get that um, yeah. in their um, upbringing, they need that versus the family that's like, they can do that. It's just everything that around, around them is, is stressful or all gradations in between. Um, right. But that's part of what we're watching for in child welfare. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, and I, 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 and they're going to require different mechanisms, right. And different types of interventions. And that could be within the same family over a given stretch of time, right. They mm-hmm. can go from not knowing to knowing, uh, how to engage, um, that it's, uh, interacting with kids at different ages is, are different, right. So maybe you're not so good at it with a, with a baby, but maybe once they're talking, uh, and able to express their needs a little better, you're going to be able to, to engage a little bit more. So even within a family, this balance of kind of where the most effective levers for change uh, are could, could change. Um, so I think it's a really hard job, right? Like that's, a, yeah. that's, 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 ex- you're expecting a lot out of, uh, you know, uh, limited resources. You, you know, these mm-hmm. seeing a lot of families uh, for mm-hmm. a limited time, it's a lot to figure out. 
Um, so I, 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 by no means, I don't want to give the impression that this is easy. Um, it is, it is not. Um, but I think starting with that kind of systems level thinking um, and, and uh, individualizing for families, again, with the keeping in mind the goal, the goal is for kind of these are the optimal types of engagements that we want between sure. caregivers and children. How do we make that happen? Sure. And that's going to, and that's going to vary. And I think that's, it's, it's helpful feedback to say, if you've got the mom or primary caregiver, whoever that is, um, working two jobs and, um, and struggling to keep the, the, the basics, there are other people in that environment that can, that can be that sensitive attuned caregiver for that period of time while the mom is, is meeting basic needs. Um, and, and so in some ways that's kind of a, a relief almost that, that if we think bigger and we think more systemically, it gives us more options to bolster up that family. And, and so it doesn't just have to be, uh-oh, it's this parent or nothing. Like we, we can get at it yep. from multiple directions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a line at this point, but it, it takes a village. It does. <laughs> like, yeah. it, 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 you know, you, like we don't exist as kind of standalone entities in this world, right? We, we're tethered to the world and other relationships and uh, and we should find where those assets are um, mm-hmm. and, and try to use them the best we can. And I think that's gonna be very different for different families um, and even within a given family for a, diff- for a given point in time. Um, but thinking, you know, with the, starting with the mechanism and then backing out to s- kind of the systems that can support that mechanism, it might be a, a fruitful way of kind of thinking about these questions. Sure, sure. Well, I think we've gone through our questions um, that we, we've covered a lot of different areas. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else that you think we should talk about um, in this work or, or some of the main takeaways that you want us as child welfare workers to get from um, this field that you're working in? Yeah, I mean, in terms of some takeaways, I'd say, um, you know, as a species, we are social animals. We come expecting these things. Um, kids also come with lots of skills, so we're not, you know, just blank slates either, right? Um, and so, figuring out how to kind of maximize these these social engagements early on are literally found, the foundations for all higher order stuff. Um, so it, it is, everything is, is built on these, these early experiences. Not that they can't be fixed later, um, mm-hmm. but we're setting the systems off in a direction. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how these, and so we want to start in a, in a good direction, in a direction in which kids are engaged with other people. Um, they feel safe. Um, and at, at the neural level, this actually allows you to learn better. Um, so I, it is just this, this idea of um, the way you experience and the way you feel the world actually experiences how you learn from the world. They're inherently intertwined. Um, and so in a sense, it's like saying something is emotion and something is cognition is really a false dichotomy. Um, sure. You know, these things are always interacting. And so the more we kind of think about um, what is getting kids feeling good? What is getting them engaged, challenged in a good way? So like stimulated, right? Um, sure. it, like these are the things that are, are, are just crucially important. I also think that, um, you know, we need to think about 
what what one of the things these kids are kids as a species like as a human species what kids are bringing to the table is a, a set of skills where they're in, interested and engaged in social interactions but they're also we've evolved that these systems are very flexible um, to experience and so our experiences are calibrating our brains our experiences are calibrating these complex connections between everything mm-hmm. uh, between our stress physiology the way mm-hmm. we think our immune systems all these things are complexly organized but mm-hmm. um, it's experience that is organizing them and it's organizing them in a logically consistent way to adapt in that environment mm-hmm. um, sometimes the kids might it might look like this is oh this is a um, kid who is dysregulated. And, and I think it's easy to toss that up as, as saying, oh, this kid has, this is a bro- broken brain. This is a broken what have you. And that's not, that's not really the right way to think about it. It's a way of thinking, this is an adaptive set of behaviors that allows this child to live in this, to live in this given environment because that's the sure. way their environment shaped the, these complex systems. It helped organize it. And so I think the idea of um, maybe trying to back away also when you're thinking about kids in these scenarios as, um, as overly pathologizing them. These are, these are skills. They're a different set of skills. They're not skills that we necessarily want to see a kids. We don't want anxious kids. We don't want hypervigilant kids. But nonetheless, that's a really adaptive way of being in the world if you have an unpredictable or unsafe environment. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, you know, th- thinking about adaptation and as opposed to kind of pathology as we think sure. about how kids develop. Um, I think that's an important um, thing to think about because it means that these are not just broken systems. These are systems that are internally consistent. Um, sure. and, and that's one of the reasons why it's, it's you know, intervening is, can be difficult uh, because they have adapted. Uh, sure. uh, so we need to kind of think about what led to this particular organization um, as, as we try to tailor kind of the way we intervene with kids or interact with kids in these scenarios. Yeah, that's really helpful information. And, and, and just throughout our, our talk today, I feel like like the, the themes or the bottom lines that you've given us are that, that infancy and early childhood are incredibly important and um, that, the, that, t- that the experiences that children have in that time are um, critical for the lifetime, but also flexible and adaptable as time goes on and that we really need to think of that child in terms of their system that that this isn't just a child you know if a if a child's exhibiting a behavior or, or uh something that that draws our attention look bigger look look at their system around them both for um what happened to them and also where are the the solutions or the the situations that might help um, address and manage that situation and, and help improve the situation for all of them. Any final words? No, well, I'll say first, I mean, that, that's a great summary. Thank you for that, Chris. <laughs> um, that's exactly right. And uh, no, I mean, I think it's the kind of thing, I, I, heck, I could talk about this all day. Um, uh, so, uh, but uh, I, I appreciate you, uh, the interview, the, the chance to talk about it today. Well, great. Thank you so much for being here. I know that I've uh, gotten a lot of out, of out of it too and a lot of insights. So um, thank you. Thank, and thank you. Thank you for listening to the Early Development and Child Welfare podcast series. 
This podcast was supported in part by the Minnesota Department of Human Service Children and Family Services Division.